We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. The Reverend Dr. Sarah Lund majored in religious studies at Trinity University and then went on to graduate with a Master's of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary, in addition to a Master's of Social Work from Rutgers University. In 2002, she was ordained to Christian ministry by the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and began serving as a local pastor in 2003. She served in congregations in Brooklyn, Minneapolis, Florida, and now Indianapolis. She also served on the Florida Conference staff as a regional minister for churches in Central and Western Florida, providing pastors and congregations with support for renewal and vitality. In 2014, she published a book about the story of her family, faith, and mental illness titled Blessed Are the Crazy, breaking the silence about mental illness, family, and church. Sarah served on the president's leadership team at Christian Theological Seminary as vice president for advancement, completing a $4 million capital campaign and raising funds to launch the world's first PhD program in African-American preaching. In 2018, she accepted the call to serve as the first woman senior pastor at First Congregational United Church of Christ in Indianapolis. She also serves on the national staff of the United Church of Christ as the Minister for Disabilities and Mental Health Justice. Currently, she is also on the executive leadership track for women clergy at Princeton University. I first met Sarah when an administrator at Christian Theological Seminary suggested that I would like her church and we may be a good fit to work together for my supervised ministry. New to the UCC and the possibility of pastoring myself, Pastor Sarah answered every question under the sun for me and she still continues to. I've been lucky enough to serve with her as student pastor now for the past semester and will continue to again in the next. Last November, I had the chance to hear her keynote speech at a UCC mental health conference in Arizona. Her bravery and courage amazed me, and yet what still struck me so deeply was her fervor and determination to reduce the stigma of mental health and disabilities in the church spaces and beyond. Her determination for justice and truth in these realms is one of the greatest gifts to work alongside. In her book, Blessed Are the Crazy, which includes incredibly personal stories about mental health and her family, she writes, faith is not an antidepressant. It cannot be swallowed in order to rewire our brains for happiness. Sarah's leadership in the church and in reducing mental health and disability stigma amazes me, and I'm so grateful to work alongside her. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's really a joy to be in conversation with you and in ministry with you, Cassidy. Mm, Thank you. We often like to begin by asking our guests about a memory of silence from their lives, whether that may be from childhood or another earlier memory of one of the first times you encountered silence. As I think about my first memory of silence, there is a story I haven't shared before. And I think one of the reasons I haven't shared it is because of the stigma that I still carry about 
mystical experiences that I have this deep fear that what feels mystical to me is actually a symptom of mental illness. Mm. So I appreciate the question because it gives me an opportunity to address my own self-stigma and overcome my fear of sharing the story. And so I don't recall how old I was. I, I remember I was very young and I was still living in California, which I moved away from before I was 10. So it's an early childhood memory, a young elementary school, living in Southern California where beautiful weather and a lot of time was spent outdoors. And I remember coming across a frog that was on the sidewalk. And I crouched down to get to be eye level with this frog and it didn't move. It just stayed there. And so I remember laying on my stomach on the sidewalk as a girl, just staring at this frog, which seemed to last for hours, but it might've just been a few moments, but it took me to some other silent place. I appreciate that answer very much because um, my personal background too, uh, we've discussed on the podcast in the past, uh, kind of our interactions as, as young children and, and even, you know, teenagers and as adults, our interaction with silence and the mystical and the contemplative. And uh, I do recall uh, a number of times in my youth where uh, some very fascinating and interesting shifts in consciousness and awareness have happened to me. And I remember speaking and thinking to myself that, you know, I think you're losing your mind. This isn't, you know, this isn't, quote, normal. Normal people don't do this or hear this or see this or think this. So uh, I appreciate the kind of open, raw honesty of thinking, wow, what's wrong with me here? What part of that experience holds you in captivation that you come back to it? Um, I think it was because I was um, interacting with a creature like a frog Mm. on such a profound spiritual level that I didn't quite know how to articulate, but that really changed me. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm much more accustomed now as an adult to connect to nature in terms of landscapes, whether it's an ocean, a mountain, a forest. I've had some encounters with deer Mm -hmm. and owls and birds, Mm. but a reptile or an amphibian, you know, a a frog, um, it just was really unexpected. And you remind me in, in your book, you write, yet because of the crazy in the blood of my family, this gift of mysticism is often shadowed by my own fear that mysticism is actually a code word for crazy, which you just you know, implied um, that sentiment in your response. And I'm really struck by, you know, these things of internalized patriarchy, misogyny, stigma, the ways that these embedded beliefs get into us and don't allow us to feel our gifts, to feel out our truths. And it strikes me that you've encountered many of these, especially being a, a woman in a leadership position in church and working to reduce stigma of mental health and disabilities and all this. I guess, I don't know what my question is. 
how, how do you keep going and how do you keep overturning? And it's, it's a lot of work for, for us, internal work, right? To continually recorrect ourselves on these internalized notions of injustice. And so I wonder how, how you keep that going. There's really strong models in our faith tradition of women who have faced the patriarchy and continued and kept going. Um, Joan of Arc, uh, Julian of Norwich, you know, other mm -hmm. uh, examples, Mary Magdalene, uh, mm -hmm. biblical examples, early church examples that inspire me. And also in the womenist tradition, uh, Alice Walker and Toni Morrison and other mm -hmm. uh, strong women who have really claimed their power from their life story and their authentic experiences of being human in the world and relating to God and having full access to God's power and God's spirit and not being afraid to manifest that in the world. So I've been deeply inspired by the role model of, of other women. What was different for me and what led to the book was that I did not have a role model, man or woman, in the church of talking openly about mental illness. And so it really was an invitation to step forward into a empty space. And the way I experienced that invitation was through spirituality, through silence, through mysticism, uh, really out of a time of silence, being invited by God to tell the story. So it wasn't any person that opened that space for me, but it was God. See, what I love about that answer, and I think maybe this I can clarify a little bit here, the idea of the mystical, the silent, the contemplative is moving us away from, quote, the ordinary, the way our culture and everything structures society. Cassidy's already pointed out and that our structure has built into it patriarchy and stigma and a whole bunch of things that are what we consider normal. And yeah, you've suggested in your story, uh, and I think anybody who listens to this podcast recognizes that what we call normal isn't the complete picture. And in fact, may not be normal at all, might be a very broken kind of uh, tool to get at the world and harms us. And so it's this interesting interplay. This is why I think your work is so important because on some level, we want to expand the categories and move to the liminal, to the silent, to, to suggest that maybe we can talk to the trees or to the amphibians or to the landscape. And that, that is normal. Um, that, that, you know, that doesn't seem normal to our society, but that actually is normal for the human species and that we should be doing that. And then we should be able to speak into the transcendent. Uh, you know, to the divine, et cetera. And so these moving in this mystical direction, but then to discern what we mean by mental illness, where, where is that line? Because there is sometimes you could see, an, like you said, you felt yourself, is this mysticism? Is this silence? Is this holy? Or is this mental illness? You were asking yourself that question. I asked myself that question. Do you have any kind of, since this is your work, do you have any insights into discerning the difference between when we can cross into something that's mental illness and when 
We're actually exploring something that's good for us as humans, that's beyond what society tells us. Yes. I think one of the greatest gifts of the Christian faith is the gift of beloved community. This concept of the body of Christ, that we are part of one another and we cannot exist without the other. Mm. And that is key to understanding the health and wellness of someone's thoughts. Disordered mm. thinking is a, uh, can be a scary and dangerous place that isolates people. And the more isolated we are and the more lost and alone we are, the more disordered our thinking becomes. And so the gift of the faith community and the gift of the church and why it's so important to make space in the church for these conversations is that we can provide each other the grace and the love to help monitor and navigate what is of God and what is not, you know, what is disordered and what is ordered. So that's something I have thought a lot about. And it's really powerful to embrace someone who has been isolated, who has been alone, who's been lost in their thoughts, and grant them the gift of community. It's that story of the garrison, uh, the demoniac. He was isolated. He was put in chains mm -hmm. alone. And his thoughts were extremely disordered. He was self-harming. And when he encounters Jesus, part of his healing was that he was invited to be back in community. And so I, I think that's another uh, powerful scriptural story that one way we can help people on the journey of mental wellness is to ensure community. People can have thoughts, and if their thoughts don't align with how the community has sensed a God speaking to them, then that's a, that's a signal to me. And it's also um, something that mental health professionals and social workers use as well, because there are lots of different religions and different spiritualities and different cultures. Uh, it's not black and white. We have to look at people's context. And so given the context a person is living in, we can ask the question, do other people in this culture, do other people in this religion have similar beliefs? Or is this person um, isolated in their belief? And so that is one way to understand that a belief might not be productive or helpful, that it, it might possibly lead to harm. This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. You know, listening to you, I'm reminded of really the great tradition, the great contemplative and mystical tradition we see in the West. <clears throat> I'm thinking about St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Teresa of Avila, the desert mothers and fathers. 
again and again and again, John Cash, and they all speak of the importance of this discernment. And even your language about thoughts, the discernment of thoughts, that's very much a part of the desert tradition. And if I can just very briefly speak a little bit of my own story. When I was 16, I had what, you know, I don't like the terminology, but I haven't found anything better. A mystical experience, a sense of just this divine indwelling and this kind of luminosity and, and, and love that filled me and filled everyone in the room that I was in. And I grew up in, in you know, a mainline Protestant church and a Lutheran church. And nobody in my community had any language or even a map for that. And it led really for kind of a personal crisis for me. And so I, I'm curious, and now you're, you're in ordained ministry. And so I'm really curious that what your thoughts are about how the church has not been available to provide that beloved community and, and has, has either in terms of pathologizing mystical experience or just simply not having the tools at all. And then what advice would you have, especially for clergy and other you know, people in, in positions of leadership to help to foster the kind of community where both those who are having that kind of transpersonal mystical encounters, as well as those whose thoughts are taking them into places that may be toxic or dysfunctional, can find welcome and can find the support that they need. So mental health is on a spectrum and all of us move across the spectrum throughout the day, throughout the, the weeks and months and years of our lives. And so it's quite possible that someone who's experiencing a mental health crisis is um, in a moment of crisis in one place on the spectrum, but through their recovery and their own uh, wellness journey, they're in another place. And so it's just really important to acknowledge that all of us have our own journeys of mental wellness and we're, we're never uh, stuck in one place and we're never limited or defined by our illness, our disease, our diagnosis. I think traditionally, as I've looked at church history, St. Augustine talks about melancholy and the readings I have done of his work when he talks about melancholy, he associates that with a sadness of heart that resulted in a depression. But the cause of that, as I read Augustine, I believe that for him, what has caused the melancholy is the turning away from God. And so in that way, melancholy early in the church was associated with sinful behavior, a willful and sinful turning away from God, which then led to melancholy. And so that, that type of theology, although maybe not formalized informally, created a Christian culture that did some real damage to people who experience depression, anxiety, and mental illness. First of all, mental illness was associated as a sin or with sinful behavior that one needed to repent of or be forgiven for. Second, it says that your mental illness is a willful choice. 
that we're choosing to be depressed, we're choosing to be anxious. And so those two um, alone are very harmful because it causes great distress to feel as though your mental illness, which we now know is chemical and biological and environmental, is your fault. And then it also says that since you're choosing to be this way, you can choose to not be this way. So you alone are, are the only person who can improve your situation. And it's either by prayer or by Bible study or having more faith. And all of those things are so damaging because it adds to the stigma and the shame of mental health conditions in the church. It makes it so that people want to be silent about it and not share with the pastor or other Christians about their struggles for fear of being judged. And so, frankly, what I believe is that until we have a liberation theology of disabilities and mental health justice, this type of toxic theology will remain in the water we drink and in the air that we breathe. Because we're silent about it, these stigmatizing beliefs continue throughout every generation. And it also impacts who can be part of the church as a member and who can be a leader in the church. So when we think about mysticism and those who are called into ordained ministry, we know through some excellent research at Duke Divinity about flourishing and ministry that those called into ministry have a higher percentage experience of depression. And some of the research shows that current clergy have twice the rate of depression as the general public. And so we have pastors and those who seek to be pastors who, for whatever reason, we don't know why that is, have more experiences with mental health challenges. That's who we have uh, wanting to lead our churches. Yet we have created this toxic culture around mental illness so that we don't have the support in place to give our clergy what they need to flourish and thrive. Instead, we have a process that seeks to penalize those who have mental health challenges. And so uh, currently, to be an authorized minister in many denominations, there's a required psychological exam. It costs thousands of dollars, takes several days. And so for a lot of our uh, folks, who do have histories of mental health challenges, maybe a history of being hospitalized, who come with prescriptions to treat their mental health challenge. The fact that the church is going to screen them in this way causes a lot of anxiety and stress. And there are problems with it because currently these exams are undertaken at great expense to the individual person, at great expense to the church and the denomination. And there really is no systematic way to interpret the tests. I was part of a high-level consultation with, with denominational leaders and the people who created this examination process. And the denominational leaders looked to those giving the exam to tell them whether or not people should be flagged as a high risk. 
Those creating the exam look to the denominational leaders to be the ones to decide who should be flagged and at high risk. So neither party really wanted to take the responsibility of screening out people. So that's, that's a problem. The other problem is that when uh, committees review this examination, they aren't trained for how to interpret them. And so it's very common that a history might be revealed of hospitalization. And because there's been no training, that person is disqualified. Now, the problem with that is if you look at the, the history of Christian thinkers and ministers and leaders, we know that several of them do have mental health challenges and histories of depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder. And so if we're automatically screening out people who have histories of mental health challenges, think of the leaders that we have already excluded from the church. So what I propose is that the church consider neurodiversity a gift and people who are atypical have, have uh, neurodiverse ways and atypical ways as people who are actually gifted with new and different ways of seeing the world and new and different ways of imagining the church. And so instead of spending thousands of dollars and days and days on these psychological exams, that time and money would be invested in creating support systems and resources for all those authorized ministers so that they have free mental health care, so that they have wellness days, days during their week schedule where they see a therapist or a spiritual director, money where they can always afford their medications, you know, times for spiritual retreat and for silence that we know is so healing and nourishing to our mental health. And so I think we're in a really interesting time as we continue to learn more about the brain and learn more about mental health. The good news is that there is a real openness on the part of churches to think in new ways about how we can honor those who are called to serve and all the gifts that they bring. You know, Sarah, I'm struck that, you know, earlier in the conversation, we were talking about women in the church and women in leadership in particular you called numerous names into our presence, right? Of those who have inspired you. And you also mentioned that there was no name before you who stepped into this work of really mental health and disability justice in the church. And one thing you've taught me a lot about is the importance of stepping into our story and stepping into our truth as something that, you know, to listen to, right? To heed that intuition, something which in particular women are told and taught not to listen to or engage with. And, you know, not unlike the fact that you chose to share the story about the frog at the beginning of this conversation, that felt like an intuitive, you know, you were listening to what you were being told to say. And I wonder what was the impetus, what was the intuition for you to begin stepping into this work in this front of mental health awareness and disability awareness and, and justice in the church? Was it an intuition? Was it your own story? What led you here initially? The invitation to this work came from my own work of salvation. I had an existential crisis where I realized that serving a local church as its spiritual leader and pastor, when my father died, I was not able to 
be who I was in the world with my church. And it felt very wrong. My father died and I immediately asked the congregation for some time away to tend to his funeral. And they were shocked to hear that he had died. Everyone, you know, presumes health until you know otherwise. So someone who was, they presumed to be very healthy to die, you know, in his early 60s. That broke my heart that they did not have any clue as to what I, what I had lived with. So when I did his funeral, uh, which I led um, a graveside service for him, I went to a young clergy women's conference, and that's where I heard a woman preacher, Anna Carter Florence, speak to us. It was a small group of women, and uh, she did her PhD about women preachers, and she was uh, in the basement archives of Princeton Theological Seminary, desperately looking for any record of women preachers and hardly found anything. And she said that uh, it's still our work to do as women to preach because we hold stories that the world needs to hear, stories that we've been told not to tell, but that each one of us has a God story waiting to be told. And I had just come from my father's funeral. And so as she said that to me, and I thought, what is my God's story waiting to be told? What story do I have that the church and the world needs to hear? That's when I knew it was the story of mental illness, my family, and the church. And that in telling that story, I would be made whole again. This divided self I had created to survive couldn't serve me or the church anymore. I couldn't live that way anymore. I had to be whole. I had to be authentic. And I had to honor my whole story. This concludes part one of a two-part episode. Stick with us next week when we hear part two. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. <laughs>